that makes you laugh? Why do you like the logo or the, the, yeah, the logo. What is it that I makes just, you laugh? Cause I have a thing. It's our faces and it just looks, it, <laughs> it reminds me of uh, the guy of me reminds me of tickle from that or, or, for, or the one dude from the, I don't know if you've watched that show with um, where they make uh, lick whiskey. Um, what, do, what do they call that? Um, Moonshine? They make moonshine. There's a show like I don't know if it's on A and E or something, but it's like okay. a reality show okay. about guys out in the out in the woods like making making moonshine. So it looks like okay. these guys. Okay, that's what they look like. It just makes me laugh just because it's us, and yeah. it just looks like we're we're, we're just uh, having a hoot. Yeah, it's just you know a slice of life. Yeah, yeah. So here's what makes me laugh: is uh-huh. that everything about the picture feels very authentic. You know, it's all very old timey and everything else. Yeah. Uh, you got the hats. I love that your belt is just a string that's like uh, <laughs> tied in a knot. It's just fantastic. But here's the thing that makes me laugh every time. And I'm dressed like I'm dressed like uh, like uh, Vladimir Lenin. Yes. Wearing the, the full Lenin coat with the hat, the whole thing. <laughs> um, but what makes me laugh is looking at this old time photo and then seeing that we're both wearing like extremely obviously modern sunglasses and something about <laughs> that combination of like, you know, I'm wearing like wraparounds. You know, yes. You know, yes. and like clearly like a plastic frame, you know what I mean? It's just something about that combination is so, uh, it just tickles me to death. It's just like, I mean, it's the, it's the absurdity of it that like, I think as my father used to say, a man on a galloping horse would never notice. And I think that's probably true. A lot of people would just look at it and not even think about the sunglasses. But as soon as you do, you're like, oh, yeah, that's it's absolutely absurd to see these yep. two guys like from the from the 1870s in, you know, 21st century sunglasses. That is a funny shot, man. I love mm. it. I love it. No, it's, it, it is. He did a he did a, or, uh, a great job. So one thing before we get started here, I do want to say yeah. like to to welcome uh, what I would love to have as a new sponsor. What's that? that is? Uh, oh, my God. Crab salsa? Blue crab salsa. Old Florida. Crab salsa? Blue crab salsa. Now. Ooh, I never even might, heard of that. It's a, you would never imagine it. But this is not a Maryland product. This is a Florida uh-huh. product. And, uh, and it is quite fantastic. How um, come we didn't figure out to put it in salsa? All that uh, stuff, crab stuff we have up here, we haven't figured out to put it in salsa. I mean, what is crab soup except uh, almost salsa? Yeah, <laughs> you know, <laughs> pretty much <laughs> blend, blend, blended. You throw some uh, throw some different vegetables in there, but uh, like you start with the salsa base, and then just throw some throw some corn and some uh, green beans, and you got yourself uh, crab soup. That's it. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, anyway, yeah, it's pretty fantastic. My. I'm going to give, give credit here. My, uh, my cousin, Mike, my cousin, Mike, uh, when we went down there for the, uh, the Super Bowl, said, I picked up, I, we saw this at Publix of all, I mean, just like just at Publix, which was crazy. And uh, he's like, we picked it up just for you, you know, to try while you're here and all that. And I was like, all right, cool. Let's, you know, it's just like, oh man, it's, that's just, it's fantastic. That's so, awesome. Yeah, man. Um, all right. Tough. Let me, uh, yep. So hold on. Let me, I'm trying to get my, uh, I love that I'm recording when I'm not ready to record, but I, uh, 
you would you would know if you uh, if you listen to these things, yes, son of a, um, that uh, I've been doing like uh, a, a proper like cold open, and it's been kind of nice. It's been a nice little way to open the open the show. I have found so uh, good. Let us take a journey back into time. Completely unbalanced. Come on now, Brian. That's pretty awful. Oh my god. <laughs> He's unbalanced. This guy is a lunatic. These men lived in a much different time. God, we got some kooky people back in this time. Not obvious that we are professionals. You are not paying attention. We know what we're doing. <laughs> but I'm serious. Can we start already? Welcome back to Unbalanced Views of History. I'm Brian. I'm just a dude who likes history and writes too much for each one of these episodes. As always, I'm here with my friend, a man who thought Mungo Park was the big oafish cowboy in Blazing Saddles. It's Mike. Hi, Mike. What's up, Big Daddy? How are you this week? Well, you remember Mongo from Blazing Saddles. Uh, I don't. Mongo only pawn in game of life. Oh man, uh, Ma- Mongo's the the I big uh, the big burly brute they send in to uh, to kill Sheriff Bart, and he comes in and he uh, rides into town years. on the back of a, a humongous ox instead of a horse. Uh, and at one point, a at one point, a nice. guy riding a horse like tries to get out of his way, and Mongo walks up and knocks the horse out in one punch. Um, I gotta watch that again. It's been since I, I was a kid. I think every I time I see Mungo that. Park, I keep thinking, I, I, "Well, see, you haven't seen the movie long." I I think of Mongo Blazing from Saddles. Blazing Saddles, so I put that on you. Anyway, <laughs> okay. anyway, but I also know <laughs> Mungo Park because he's like a famous explorer. But um, anyway, all right, so. We are talking about time in the Old South, and we left off talking about the degree to which clock time had infiltrated the consciousness of enslaved folks there. And today, we're going to finish our journey of time from slavery to freedom. So, are you ready? I'm ready. Do some history. So, let's do it. Um, I'm not going to really do a, a, a sum up because we just recorded not, not too long ago. So hopefully it's all still fresh. Um, so I'm just going to yeah run right in. So um, reading mechanical timepieces was something that required specific training, right? Like learning a new language, right? You don't just, um, you don't just naturally look at a clock and understand it, right? You have to be taught. So any kind of learning like that means power. So as a result, this was a closely guarded secret among white folks, as you might imagine. Some uh, specialized, plan- specialized plantation jobs may have required uh, cl- some clock knowledge. So clock literacy was very valuable. For, for example, um, former Georgia slave James Bolton explained, quote, Mistress Dunn learned the cook to count the clock, but none of the rest could count the clock, end quote. So cooks, you know, you might imagine, kind of one of the, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep, you got exactly. to pull the but, turkey But uh, cooks could also rely on natural time. So this former slave, Cinna Banks, remembered, quote, my sister done all the cooking, and as they were shorthanded in the field, she had to help in the field, too. She would put the meat for the vegetables on to boil, and then she would mark on the floor to show me where the sun would be when it was 10 o'clock, and I would put the vegetables in to boil with the meat, 
end quote. Yeah. Sounds good. But you, you know, in the last, last episode, you had asked me about something like, well, how would you, without a clock, how would you know how to do certain things? I was like, well, you become an expert in the natural world. That's how. And so just like being able to mm-hmm. just know yep. on the floor where to mark for 10 o'clock is, you know, one of those kind of skills or evidence of that kind of skill. Yeah. Yep. A former Texas slave, Bob Davis uh, from Texas summed this whole thing up. Quote, hmm. black folks don't have the watches in those in them days. So they can't tell the time. End quote. So without timepieces, enslaved folks relied on their African sensibilities for temporal meaning. Missouri slave Jane Simpson explained, quote, We didn't own no clocks them days. We just told the time by the sun, uh, by the sun in the day, and the stars at night. If it was clouded, we didn't know what time it was. End quote. When asked about this or asked to sort of explain further, she really cleverly kind of explained, quote, the white folks didn't want to let the slaves have no time for themselves, end quote, which is a pretty pointed statement. Literally. Didn't want them to know how to tell time, but also didn't want them to have time for themselves. It's kind of a nice double meaning, I think. Yeah. Yep, so natural time consciousness um, did, however, let uh, enslaved folks carve out space for themselves, however limited. So, quote, the old folks used to let the ch- let us children run and play at night while the white folks sleep. And they watched the stars to tell what time to call us in and put us to bed before the white folks knew we was out, end quote. I mentioned, mm, yeah, let the kids play. play mm-hmm. At night. Gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. Now, okay. I had mentioned before plantation bells or horns sounding around 4 a.m. But one of the things interesting about that is all those quotes that I read you, or a lot of them, were from slaves or former slaves themselves saying that, that the bells or the horns sounded at 4 a.m., which raises a question. How'd they know it was 4? One Alabama slave said, quote, I had to get up in the morning around 4 o'clock. I guessed the time by the stars, end quote. For enslaved people, the irritating noise of clock-regulated bells or horns intruded on sleep, annoying but difficult to ignore. Mechanical clock time allowed masters to preempt the rooster and get slaves into the field by dawn's early light. Former Texas slave Jack Harrison remembered his master, quote, got up every morning about 3.30, and we always out in the field waiting for it to get light so we could see how to work, end quote. Another former Texas slave, Lee McGillery, explained, quote, master always wakes the slaves himself about four o'clock every morning so as we could be in the field waiting for the daylight to come then, end quote. I just realized that. Like, how are they seeing anything? What's the point of just having them out there for three hours or whatever? I don't know what time the sun's coming up here, but, you know, if they're out there at four and Uh it's pitch dark, they don't have flashlights. Well, that is to make sure that not one single solitary second of daylight gets missed. So as soon as uh, dawn starts to break, as soon as the sky starts to lighten up enough to see anything, time to work brutal i would use that time to escape yeah i mean it's uh when when the when you got the overseer there with the rifle uh you know know. it's it's the the thing is and and lots of people do although that's not the best time to escape because the by then the plantation's all up and about so you've got a lot of people milling about who could chase you down but uh, the thing about uh, about running away, and plenty of people do, of course, is uh, there's well, really yeah, you go, go north. 
But the biggest problem is, well, oh, yeah, yeah, but you know, we're worth it if you can get there. But the biggest problem is mm-hmm. for most people, uh, if you're risking death, <laughs> um, is, you know, most people will try to bloom where they're planted. You know what I mean? Like, um, while the, the situation might be absolutely abysmal, um, many people will, will, will say like, well, you know, this is, this is horrific, but unless something, unless some sort of opportunity that would be too good to pass up presents itself, I, I would rather live. I mean, the drive to live is strong. Yeah. Right. Um, no, I mean, that's not always sure. the case. I mean, there are, uh, certainly examples of like, um, in, uh, I think it's South Carolina. It might be North Carolina. There's a place on the Atlantic called uh, Igbo Point where uh, a group of Igbo slaves all walked out hand in hand out together into the Atlantic and drowned themselves uh, rather than rather than uh, being slaves. You know, where I mean, like a huge number all just walked out and drowned themselves. Um, you know what I mean? So, and there's probably some Stockholm syndrome too, right? Going on. Quite possibly. Quite likely. PTSD, uh, doing all kinds of things. Sure. Anyway. All right. Um, you've seen Django. Sh- and sure. Game, not, you? not, I wouldn't exactly call that historically accurate, but yeah. Um, I mean, but uh, my, my example would be, uh, um, Sam Jackson face. Oh man. Mm-hmm. Sam Jackson. Yep. That's right. Sam Jackson. Yeah. In that it's, um, something like that. One of these days we're, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, one of these days, we're going to talk about Jamaica and runaways in Jamaica because that's a really interesting case. Because you have uh, runaway maroons that form their own communities that engage in armed conflict with the British, win, sign treaties in order to live independently, and mm-hmm. but the the condition of their independence. I mean, and again, this is the thing: they fought, they fight, and they win, but they still, in order to have independence. Uh, because you know, like they need to be able to, like one of the problems is that they need to be able to trade with uh, the British for certain supplies. So they, they win, but they're also, uh, you know, it could get dire if they don't have the right supply. Right. So mm-hmm. they agree to live independently and all this other stuff. But the deal is they also agree to, uh, capture and return runaway slaves in exchange for sort of being left alone. Mm-hmm. And so you know, so they have a real controversial history or uh, they have a, they're controversial to some degree in Jamaica because like, while it's, there's a heroic, there's, it's heroic that they ran away, created their own towns, armed themselves, defended their freedom and managed to, to, to win. That's all very heroic. But the deal was then they turned and they were like, well, it's just us then. You know what I mean? Like we're gonna we're gonna play yeah. we're gonna play slave catcher police for the British from here on out. <laughs> you know what I mean? So it's sort of a yeah. So That's but again, I mean, you know, you you. I mean, people people constantly have to make compromises in there. You know. So former slaves basically as bounty hunters. Well, hunting it wasn't. Slaves. They didn't so much bounty Runaway hunt slaves, but like in Jamaica, where it's an island, so there's limited opportunities to run away and running away to an existing community of runaway slaves is, you know, seems like a pretty good option uh, if you're running away. And, and, right. uh, and there's, there's right. plenty of evidence right. that they didn't exactly, uh, they didn't exactly adhere to their, their obligation, you know, 
uh, flawlessly or anything, but they did, they did to some degree as well. Like there are, there certainly are examples of some people who were allowed to stay and that were kept hidden and protected and others who were returned. So again, you know, it's a complicated, it's as with most things, it's a complicated history. Okay. Anyway. All right. So let's see where we Harriet Jones. Um, yeah, back to the waiting for the daylight to come up. Harriet Jones described uh, the sonic intrusion of the clock. Excuse me. Or in this case, uh, of the horn. Quote, old master had a horn he blew for us to get up by long about four o'clock. It begin to blow. You be sleeping so good that when the, ho- that, that when the horn start blowing and you just turn over and try to take another nap, then it goes again. B-L-O-W. How loud that old horn do blow. Just as well wake up, for there ain't no use in trying to sleep nohow. End quote. That is, she uh, that is the... She hit snooze button. She was like, I'm taking 10. 10 and more, and 10 we all know minutes, that feeling. Man. Like, oh, God. Dude, I hate that. Just, just you reading that makes me just dread. Because I hate the sound of alarm clocks. and It's just horrible. My alarm clock when my phone is like this light little this light little drizzle of rain <laughs> that comes in with the with with like, like the sound of the of the shore sure. coming up onto the beach and that gets a little louder and a little louder and a little louder until till, till, like, till you're being bounced up, right? on a surfboard at the bottom of the of the reef <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> some, yeah 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 i got you mind. um but yeah, I mean, I just absolutely cannot stand it. So I yeah. feel for that, that poor lady. So planners imposed mechanical time on enslaved laborers, even while depend while they were dependent on the natural solar cycles for the agricultural work. Right? Even the sun, though, would eventually get corrupted by slavery. Henry Dr- Henry James Trentham explained, "Quote: We hated to see the sunrise in slavery time because it meant another hard day." End quote. If the clock-driven bells on plantations failed to inspire obedience, then the whip would. Clock discipline among the slaves would have required equipping them with timepieces, right? For them to actually be clock-disciplined, they would have to know how to tell the time. But that was, of course, an impossible suggestion because of the, the power associated with the knowledge. So planners believed that they had to have the latch. Watch and whip were, after all, really closely related. Charles Ball described how whipping was timed by the watch. Quote, after a delay of 10 minutes by the watch, I received another dozen lashes, end quote. Of course, good. So you just work fast as you can, not even knowing if it's fast enough. And then, you know, sometimes you're fast enough, sometimes you aren't fast enough, but you don't really freaking know. You're just trying to work and then you got some asshole coming along going it's too slow yeah <laughs> not, not all, it's not i mean i wouldn't say it like that um certainly there are people who you know again the different it's hard to generalize these things right i mean because we're talking about widely varied experiences generally though you know yeah there might be an expectation that you're supposed to do x amount of work in x amount of time or whatever and if you're falling behind then yeah there could be there could be painful consequences for that a lot of times, uh, the consequences are meted out for minor infractions uh, dealt with severely. So, I mean, things that, you know, might not even seem like, you know, you, you 
I don't know. You you missed uh, you missed part of the you didn't pick part or you didn't didn't pull all the weeds out or right. or or you know your your buddy fell yeah. and you stopped and helped him up and uh, and so you get you know so you get punished for for having a human moment or you know because you said something that somebody didn't that you know the overseer or whatever didn't like you know what I mean there's any number yeah. I mean being late having to go to the bathroom too much you know what I mean like any number of reasons that they I mean because it is it's a because despite the fact that we can read that there are a lot of like um there are a lot of sort of examples of at what punishment certain planners will write down like this is what i the punishment for such and such this is the punishment for such and such whatever um those kind of suggest that things are really um uh, regulated and rule-based law and order-based but they're not they're arbitrary i mean there, there's an arbitrariness because like you know they don't i don't know you catch the master in a bad mood uh and just the wrong thing you know what i mean things can go bad is this a seven day a week operation or is there, or is Sundays. there any kind of schedule here Sundays, every day? Um, Off some, on Sundays. Some. Because it's the Bible Belt, right? Yeah, so it's like, uh, it's very. That's a bad way to describe wide. it. Um, it's super religious. Yeah, I mean, certainly planners think that, think of themselves as Christians. Uh, but, and they do, you know, a lot of, uh, some of them do, some of them don't, but a lot of them have like mandatory church services and stuff. But, you know, they're also real particular about what mm-hmm. the, what preachers are allowed to read, preach about. Um, you know, you can't, no, gotcha. we're not going to hear any, uh, anything from Exodus. Um, we're not going to hear any of that stuff. You know, no, no deliverance. You know, we're not, we're not trying to share those stories. Um, we're, we want to hear, we want to hear Paul telling people, slaves, obey your masters. That's what we want. We want that stuff. Gotcha, there, cause there, gotcha, cause Christianity gotcha. does have a real liberating message. If you so you know, certainly certain parts. Yeah, sure. Uh, sure but sure. no, they, you know, they didn't want those. They're not going to learn about freeing the slaves. Like back when, like, you know, uh, Moses, uh, yeah, uh, no, uh, Moses, no, they're not, they're not getting, uh, gotcha. they're not going to get the death of the first, go every over firstborn Pharaoh's, you know, Firstborn and all that. They're not. They're not going to get those stories. Not at. Uh, not at Planter Church. You know what I mean? No, the plagues aren't going to come nope. in. They're not going to have to talk about any of the plagues or nothing. Inside okay. Washington's Museum of the Bible, a single volume that is like no other, the so-called Slave Bible, remarkable not for what's in it, but for what's not. So about ninety percent of the Old Testament's been removed, and about fifty percent of the New Testament's been removed. Uh, to put it another way, a normal King James version has eleven hundred eighty-nine chapters in it. Uh, the Slave Bible has only two hundred and thirty-two. Missing are chapters and verses that might have encouraged uprisings. Book of Exodus redacted. No story of Moses demanding Pharaoh, "Let my people go." Gone is Galatians, and the verse, There is neither bond nor free, for ye are all one in Christ Jesus. And no Jeremiah, woe unto him that useth his neighbor's service without wages. What they've left in are verses such as Ephesians 6, 5, which is the famous verse, Slaves, be obedient to your master. Yeah. Um, they don't want any Moses is rising up. But, uh, but, you know, if everybody's just saying, no, 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 My no, God, no, my no. God, why have you <laughs> forsaken me? They're, they're fine with that. You know, okay. Gotcha. Anyway, so gotcha. so yeah, after the delay in the watch. So he is, of course, uh, so it says, okay, of course, time getting whipped was not time laboring, right? So that is something the planters consider. Uh, Ball again, quote, my master Ned was in favor of giving me a dozen lashes every morning for a month with the whip. But my old master said it would keep me from my work at least half an hour every morning. So 
uh, Charles Ball obviously had some run-ins with his planners. And, uh, you know, so the, you know, he said the, the one master Ned, excuse me, beat him every morning for, for a month. But his old one said, like, I ought to beat you, but that keeps you out of the fields for half an hour every day. So I'm not gonna. You, you know what I mean? So again, there's different. Yeah, true. Every, like I said, everything's different. Everybody does things differently. Uh, labor was also clock driven. Moe Smith of Louisiana recalled, quote, when I grew up, they give me so many rows of cotton to hoe or pick. I work my own rows and they time me. So I had to hurry to get the work done. And when they send me off to the, off to the, off the farm to do a chore, they time me on that, end quote. So slaves were pushed against the clock, and this had some impact. Uh, an Alabama slave, yeah, an Alabama sure. slave uh, recalled, I like this story, a brief story. One morning, I had started to the field, and on the way, I lost my piece of bread. So he stopped and like looked around, right, found it. So once he found it, he, uh, quote, had to hurry to make up for lost time, end quote. So, like, you know, again, like timing, timing, you <laughs> yeah. know, his food against the clock in this case, right? Uh, Lou yeah, Bradford yeah, described yeah. her experience in Texas, quote, in the morning, the field boss would have the record book and each person was supposed to report before starting for work and all were punished who were late. This encouraged punctuality, she said, end quote. Bill Collins perfectly described the tyrannical nature of the bell, quote, the bell called and said, get up, I'm coming to get you. And if they did not answer the call, the overseer would whip them, end quote. Former Texas slave William Byrd explained, quote, Master had a great iron piece hanging just outside his door, and he hit, he hit that every morning at 3.30. The slaves, they come tumbling out of their beds. If they didn't, Master come around in about 30 minutes with the cat of nine tails and begins to let the slave have that. And when he got through, they knew what that bell was the next morning, end quote. Yeah. Let me ask you a question here. How many on each each of these say of uh, mm. average plantation the owner how many are living there? Like how many people does he have um on his staff I would okay. say. So this is a really hard question to answer because it depends on where it is, when it is and everything else. But you know for for somebody a member of the planter class cuz planter when I say planter that's a class you know, this is not a, this is a, a different class uh, society. There's no middle class of any kind. There's planters, there's a kind of a yeoman farmer, there's poor whites, and then there's slaves. Those are the classes. Mm-hmm. Right. A yeoman farmer usually has somewhere between zero and maybe five uh, enslaved folks that live there with him. Often they live in the same house. Um right. You know, in the case of a yeoman, okay. uh, you know, it's it's essentially, you know, a couple, it's almost like the old apprenticeship system uh, in the way that they used to all live in the same sort of house and work, and the workshop was like part of the house and all that stuff. Um, similar kind of setup. And, I mean, not in terms of the labor, which is slavery, but in terms of just like the living quarters, you didn't have separate quarters and things like that. You all kind of would live together, eat together. And yeomen are, are kind of, you know, they're, they're, they're making it, but they're not like there. There's no luxury. Poor whites sure. um, are the ones who have you know, the worst land and uh, no real prospects, and you know, no, do not have slaves uh, in any way. And in in some cases, you know, you have poor whites actually eat worse and have worse clothing and things like that than uh, than a lot of enslaved folks do. Yeah, but they're free. Slaves. Yeah. And so that gives them that gives them a social sure. cachet that makes them 
uh, support the system, even though they are uh, ultimately completely exploited by it because they they don't have access. Okay, so for a planter for the planter class, got you. Yeah, so again, you would have small plant small planters, large planters, baby. You know, if if a yeoman has up to maybe five slaves. A small planter has, you know, uh-huh. maybe maybe as many as thirty or forty, maybe. Um, okay, you know, and that's a, you know, gotcha. again, like small planter, you know, s- small, you know, petty petty bourgeois kind of uh, aristocracy, uh, but they're not bourgeois; they're more aristocracy. But you know, s- as you would like to say, small business owner. Um, <laughs> okay, so now now this yeah. guy, the small planter, has maybe. thirty to forty. Probably more, more likely to how many people like, are more likely to maybe own fifteen or twenty, and maybe be able to rent out another ten during s- certain seasons, that sort of thing. Gotcha. How, now, how many people are living in his house? On his, how many people? Fa- how, how, on how his, how, in his house. What that's is, hard to say. It, yeah, like um, his property. If, if somebody has say twenty or thirty slaves, they probably have three or four in the house, uh, plus the whatever his family is. No, not not slaved people. Yeah, so his, I'm saying his people, if, like his side. Hold on, hold on. Yeah, all right. So okay, so yeah. I mean, it's I can't tell you how many people are in, in their family. I mean, people have big families, but you know. So what I'm thinking is, what I'm thinking is this: like, how common were uprisings on each one, an individual plantation where the plantation would actually get taken over? Uprising. By okay, so yeah. I mean, so on a big. Sorry. So for a big plantation. You know, uh, it wouldn't be unusual to have, you know, 80, 90, 100, 150 for the, for the wealthiest planter. I mean, George Washington had 300 some. Thomas Jefferson had around 300. I mean, you know, right. so for the well, Andrew Jackson had, I think, 150. Um, so, you know, I mean, so, and those, so those are like the richest men, um, ha, you know, are, are in that like 120 sure. to 300 range. Um, maybe more, you know. Um, so, Full scale. I mean, yeah, full scale uprisings are less common than you would imagine, given given the numerical superiority, right? Like when we look, a lot of us just sort of think about it, like, right. oh, but you've got numbers, yeah, but you also have, you know, it's hoes against rifles, it's shovels against, you know, against, sure. you know, um, fire handguns. You know what I mean? It's, um, yeah. and again, <laughs> right. Well, I mean, it, it's yeah, I mean, they definitely yeah, but and also power, like. But- you know, it's like it's really easy to to sort of from a distance say, well, there's 200 of you against t- 10 guys with rifles, you know, like you're going to win that battle. But then the, the, the 200 involved say, yes, but at least 10 of us will die. And I don't want to be one of the 10. You, you know what I mean? Like it's that that's the you know, they're, they're right. going to get off at least one shot. And then, of course, right. if any of them can ring the alarm sound the alarm for the, you know, into the town. If anyone can, you know, can raise the alarm. If one person escapes, then you're going to get the whole town involved. We, I, I, at some point we will talk about an actual, like we will in detail go through uh, a slave rebellion in, in South Carolina and we'll look at it and sort of see how it goes. Um, yeah, it's, it's a cool story. Um, but yeah, what, what is much more common are individuals or small groups of people running away. Because that's something you can like, I can take the risk right, myself yeah. to try, you know, it's just, it's a, it's just a better play. You know, I mean, rebellion is, is a yeah. rebellion is a risky prospect. Yeah. Yep. So I mean, when you're talking about how many people live in the house, I mean, it really is a, that's a question. It's hard to answer. I'm thinking of the security force. Like how many people does he need to keep 
keep crowd control. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, how many guys does he have to have out there in the field? Well, and stuff like you know, that? when you when you enforce the rules through terror, you know, not not as many. I mean, you don't know. It's not, numbers are are. Yeah. See, that's that's what I keep thinking. I I keep thinking if they're heavy handed with the whip and stuff like that, I I mean, they have to be like, fuck well, this, sure. man. Let's just fucking kill this dude. And let's take over. It, I mean, I'm sure they're constantly, which is probably why they never let them gather alone because right, they don't no meetings plot, and things like that. They have know? to be in their own quarters. Um, exactly. Yeah. There's any number of, of things like that. And then, um, you know, another thing that happens a lot is like poisoning. <laughs> there's a lot of, there's a lot of poisoning. What's that? <laughs> you know what I mean? Again, like okay. a, a low risk, you know, for, for particularly, um, for, Planters who are particularly egregious, especially with uh, domestic, with their domestic slaves, uh, they're really rolling the dice mm-hmm. uh, on poisoning. You know what I mean? Like really rolling the dice. Mm-hmm. You know when you yes. when you're really Correct. awful to the person who prepares your food every day, you're 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 not a yes. You know you're kind of uh, trying to win a Darwin Award. Yeah. Yes. Anyway, all right. So. Um, what did I say here? Oh, yeah, yeah. So they knew the, the bell next morning. Okay. Austin Seward uh, noted this connection between punctuality and violence. Quote, woe be to the unfortunate who was not in the field at the time appointed. I have heard the poor creatures beg for their lives of the inhuman overseer to desist from his cruel punishment. End quote. Even Frederick Douglass described similar experiences. Quote, slaves sleep until they are summoned to the field by the driver's horn. There must be no halting. If they are not awakened by the sense of hearing, they are by the sense of feeling because the overseer was ready to whip anyone yep. who was so unfortunate as to not hear the sound of the horn. End quote. Clock regulated, uh, the clock actually regulated free time as well. We sort of uh, touched on this a little bit before, but this even happens in urban areas. In Augusta, you had to have a pass to go from house to house. You couldn't go out at night in Augusta after nine o'clock. They had a bell at the old market down yonder and it would strike every half an hour or every hour and half hour end quote emma knight of hannibal missouri confirmed quote we never was allowed on the street after nine o'clock we sure run for home when the church bell done rung on the hill at nine o'clock end quote even master arranged uh let's call them courtship meetings were clocked mildred graves of virginia described one such visit quote the young man was allowed to stay three quarters of an hour. End quote. John Washington of Virginia. So yeah. So hold on, hold, 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 yeah. hold on for a second here. That's a conjugal yeah. meeting now, so it's like a prison rule. I was under the impression that they had living quarters where they were like a family, the slaves, and they lived together like in their own house or something, like a guest home. Yeah, you probably you probably wouldn't have a family. You um, might have two, you know, or something there. But like, um, it would basically be like a single room. Uh, but, um, yeah, but also sometimes, you know, if you have a couple of, you know, you have single men, whatever you might try to, um, arrange, um, you would try to arrange, um, I got you. courtship. I got you. Yeah. And the, yes. Okay. So this isn't, this isn't like you're, you're keeping the, the mom and the dad separate. Well, you're like allowing them only sometimes, time yeah, sometimes, but sometimes, like, uh, sometimes enslaved folks okay. would, um, would partner up with people from other plant from neighboring plantations and then, you know, try to go see them on Sundays or whatever. 
So sometimes you'd have spouses split on different plantations, um, you know, or you'd have your kids at a different plantation. So you try to visit, you know, your family, you know, trying to see each other on weekends or whatever, when you can. How, how common was it for um, families? I, I'd have to look at the numbers. It happens a lot. I mean, I, I don't want to say it's like the majority or anything like that. It happens a tremendous amount. Um, it happens a tremendous amount. And it's also, um, it is one of the great uh, threats of violence that isn't physical violence that planters use. You know, sh- shape up or I will yes. sell your kid down the river. And it happens a lot of times yep. with people who are like runaways, though. <clears throat> you know, people who have chronically run away and been caught uh, will be threatened like, hey, you do this again, I'm going to sell your kid down the river. You know what I mean? Yep. That's yep. um, yep. why it's so like, you know, when you look at somebody like Harriet Tubman who left her family to run away and then tried to sort of, you know, help them escape as best she could one at a time here and there. Um, but she had to leave them cause she couldn't take them all with her. It's just no way. And, you know, so you, so you I mean, you can imagine that like yep. what a gut wrenching choice that is. Um, okay. Sure. So, okay. So, uh, yeah. So in this case, Mildred Graves described uh, this young man who could stay for three quarters of an hour. Uh, John Washington of Virginia knew the time on his pass quote, must be punctually obeyed, end quote. 45 minutes is plenty for me, by the way. Yeah, but this isn't, this wasn't described as a conjugal visit. I I mean, it may have been, but, you know, it's hard to, but it's also like, you know, I I mean, you're seeing somebody you haven't, you know, if you're trying to, if you have a relationship, it's not much time for a relationship. Yes. If this is like, the one in the next, you know, 30 days, you'll be back. It's like, got to make the, the most yeah. of this one. You know, this is like the, the young lady that charges the uh, $600. And never mind, but the, never mind, the broader care. point is like how tightly regulated every minute for enslaved people, how, how planners try to regulate. Yes. Okay. Yes. You're allowed to go there. You're allowed to spend yes. 45 minutes and then come back. You know what I mean? Like, <clears throat> you know, yes. Uh, Lou Lee of Texas said slaves quote, would get a pass and come over and stay with his gal. And then he would say, I am sorry, but it is that certain time. And I got to go End quote. <laughs> he hanging out with his gal. He's like, I'm sorry, baby, but it is that time. <laughs> um, the sound of time really stuck with former slaves too. So after slavery, Charlie Williams complained, quote, bells and horns, bells for this and horns for that. All we knew was go and come by the bells and horns, end quote. Susan. I was just going to say, you know how how stressful of a life it is to constantly yeah. be on a clock where it's like you're timed to, to, to use the restroom. You're timed to sleep. You're timed to get up yeah. and move. You're timed to, to play. You're timed for, for alone time with your yeah. significant other. You know, your time to make the food, your time, everything is like, holy shit, holy shit, holy shit. Like you can never run behind, like there's zero time for like just chilling, maybe Sundays, but like Monday through Saturday mm-hmm. night or whatever. I mean, it is just, which is, oh. which I mean, is one of just, the most remarkable things about, um, about African-Americans is that, that their, their ability through this period to maintain some so, like some ties i mean things get muddled and all that but to maintain some cultural ties to maintain some cultural identity you know identity like cultural markers to maintain i mean in, in a 
an environment that is entirely predicated on annihilating your individual existence, completely annihilating you as a person and turning you into a cog, you know, into a number, into a machine for, for people to, to still manage to maintain their humanity in such a, you know, after generations of such an existence is, uh, it's an unbelievable story. I mean, what country did we get slaves from? Well, country's yeah, always a little know. weird, but we, from all over, uh, lots of different places, lots of different. I thought m- mostly in this country, well, mostly from areas, mostly from this country, come from West Africa. But um, you know, uh, it's you know, it's better to think of like the different clusters of ethnic groups that come rather than and, nationalities. And, and, and I'm assuming. Right, and let me correct me if I'm wrong. Slavery really is is comes from conflict, right? So there's conflict, and then there's enslaved people from conflict, and then those enslaved people get, at the time at least, got shipped in the into in the early days of the transatlantic slave trade. That is true, but then because slaves become a commodity. And because of the, the like lust for gold, the lust for places. money creates an incentive, right. sort of a perverse incentive and pressures brought by European traders who, um, you know, through threats of violence themselves, through uh, coercion of various kinds, uh, and, and also just through by, by um, fundamentally altering the kind of um, the economic landscape of things. Uh, create these sort of perverse incentives to create a, uh, you know, a, a marketability. The time was way different then, right? So, like, I agree with you 100%. Today, no one, no one would do so, like but it's so, yeah, because like, we have, the, like, we have, we, our society is, is at this point way more civilized than, than, than it was back in those Maybe. days. Obviously, I mean, right. they had slaves, right? So, I mean, they right. still have slaves today. I mean, yeah, there's more. Slaves, there's more slaves in the world today, today than there were then. But yeah, yeah. So sure. So not sure how civilized but, we are, but yeah. And this piece always fascinates me. Yeah, I mean, here, and I, and you can still argue that, but but you know, um, I think the world in general, there was there's just rules now, right? So, you know, it's like, you know. You, you know you can go to certain places and there's and there's a society in place that's you know policed you know that, that there's rules that there's consequences unless you're rich for the man. most part and yes there's some you know and there's some derelicts that'll break the law and there's murder still and all that stuff but back then it was like all right so that's 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 show. more than enough digression let's uh let's move on because yeah, back, back to, to the, the story. story. Come on. All right. So we all last thing I said was I was talking about bells and horns, bells and horns for bells for this, horns for that. All we knew was go, all we knew was go and come by the bells and horns. Susan Merritt recalled, quote, yes, yes. when master pulled that bell rope, uh, the, the Negroes fell out of them bunks like rain fallen, end quote. Another person described the frenetic behavior caused by the bell. Quote, it was woke by a bell and called to eat by a bell, and put to bed by that bell. And if that bell ring out of time, you'd see slaves jumping rail fences and cotton rows like deers or something get into that house. 
because that means something bad wrong. End quote. J.C. Alexander said, quote, even the horse and the mules know that horn and they wouldn't go a step further if they heard him." end quote. But here's the crazy thing. Sometimes punctuality actually would arouse suspicion. So slaves even had to be careful about being sure. punctual. So when slaves were serving at like planned events, plantation, you know, like planned events, um, they were expected to be punctual. However, when the slaves that weren't serving at those events arrived punctually for like off time activities that were, you know, like planter organized, <laughs> the planters rationalized that punctuality for fun meant that tardiness in work was deliberate, uh, that it was uh, insubordination. And so that meant if, if they looked around and they saw all their slaves were on time for something fun, something they thought was fun, that meant that the next time out, they were going to have to to, uh, to use the strictest possible response for any kind of tardiness. I mean, how many fun activities were well, planned? They, they, they would do, they would do, uh, they would have like dances and they would have, you know, they, they would, they would do some, uh, yeah. Like picnics or something. I mean, remember planners, um, see themselves as these paternal figures, their fathers, you know, strict, but fair, they would say, you know, so they, they, they fathered a lot of children too. Yes, they did. Uh, So whatever adherence to clock time slaves exhibited was born out of fear, not out of any kind of like internalized clock, you know, discipline. So basically no lash, no punctuality. Resistance, uh, no matter how risky still occurred though. House servants, those who were most likely trained in the time literacy, and were thus more likely to define their working hours, like to understand what their hours were supposed to be and be able to hold to hold their uh, their the plantation master and mistress accountable for those hours. Like, well, I'm supposed to be off, you know. Um, I mean, even though that's risky, they did. If they knew, if they understood how to read the clock. They could demand that their time working was was over and things. Uh, it might not go their way, but they did have the power right. to kind of like, hey, no, I, I'm, you know, I, ha- I'm off the clock. I'm I have to go home clock. and take care of my I'm kids or clock. whatever, right? And again, you you could get punished for that baby. that sort of thing, but those were, uh, you know, th- that was risky for the planter as well because again, this is the person cooking your food. You'd be a You'd be a ballsy slave to be like, yeah, well, I'm off the clock. Y- yeah, there, but they did do this because, like, they're the ones cooking the food, right? So they do have some power there. Yeah. And, you know, that, that threat That's of uh, poisoning and things like that, that was a very real threat. Uh, and one and one that was yeah, acutely right felt. About that, man. Well, that was one that was acutely stuff. felt by the masters, too. So, you know, it's not unheard of. Okay. Sure. Um, anyway, the... These um, house servants who were the most likely timed in time literacy were the ones who would often do things like pretend ignorance with guests who didn't know any better. So I've got a, a bunch of stories, but I've got a couple I want to share real quick. Harriet Martin. Yeah, exactly. Harriet Martineau encountered this sort of thing in 1838. Quote, the waking in the morning is accomplished by two or three black women staring at you from the bedposts. Then it's five minutes work to get them out of the room. Perhaps before you are half-dressed, you're summoned to breakfast. The young people drop in when the meal is half done, and then it is discovered that breakfast has been served an hour too early. The cook has ordered affairs to her own conjectures, end quote. Uh, a British house guest to the Millibank Plantation in Virginia similarly complained, quote, Dinner is dependent entirely on the arrangements, or rather the accidents, of the slaves. 
they were very irregular. We never knew until the dinner bell rang whether it would be before 12 or after 3 or any intermediate hour, end quote. Ugh, well, that's the search. thing, right? These actions kind of fed those um, colored people time, CPT stereotypes, but they're likely ploys of resistance, right? Like when you're a slave, you have very little sure. that you control, but what you can do is you're not yeah, very but you motivated, can also, really. If you can cause inconveniences, you can at least get a chuckle out of it. You know what I mean? Like, it's yeah, exactly. I mean, again, it doesn't make any difference. No, not really. Does it make you feel a little better about things for a minute? Sure. You know what I mean? It's uh it's you see the it's, same mentality. Well, it's it's the classic uh, it's the classic spitting in their food thing. Yep. You know, does it make any difference? No. Does it put anybody in harm's way? Probably not. I mean, you know, unless you're, you know, uh, pretty disease ridden or something, you know, generally speaking, nobody's getting hurt from that, but nobody wants to know they're, they're eating uh spit food and yeah, but I mean, you know, it's, it's, the, it's like, you know, um, it's, it is a, it's a subtle arrangement when you go out to eat that you should not be a complete asshole because you know, that's, that's the deal. That's sure. the deal. You're, that is that, the deal that you make. I don't send back food, man. I do not send back food rarely. And if I do, I'm super free. Yeah, me too. And it's, it's because of, of something, you know, pretty egregious. Um, I ordered a medium rare steak and you sent me a well done one and I simply cannot eat this. (laughs) You know, you have. And I mean, I will like slide an extra 20 in their pocket. I'll do whatever to make them say, listen, take care of me, buddy. Yeah. I mean, I do not like doing that. You know, that's the deal. That's the deal. You know the deal when you when you go out, you know. And so, so it's the same kind of thing here. Anyway, all right. Let me finish. But uh, so yeah, plantation masters, however, knew this kind of stuff, right? They knew what their house slaves were capable of, and when they did things, and what the schedule was supposed to be. So you couldn't really do this kind of stuff with them because they knew better. So these kinds of tactics were typically just reserved for kind of ignorant guests who didn't know better. Um, which again makes the stereotype spread way beyond the plantation. Um, Correct. So you're yeah. a guest in their house, and you're like going to the to the to the help and saying, "Hey, you know, give me some lunch." And then, you know, three o'clock rolls around, and then you leave, and you're like, Geez. "Yeah, well, it's more just like you know, when you're you go and stay, lunchtime is served, lunch is served whenever lunch is served, but there was just no. They're like, well, you know, lunchtime is supposed to be noon, but they're just doing it at three just to kind of. You're all yeah. Meanwhile, all the all the uh, the domestics are uh, have been in the kitchen like noshing all day, so they're like, "I'm fine." You know what I mean? Like, you know, again, you you can pull this stuff up. I mean, you've seen <laughs> plantation houses. You see how like people would go there and never yeah. even see the planter, the you know, the master and mistress. You know what I mean? They're just like they're right. staying like a hotel. Yeah, yeah, like a bed and breakfast. All right. Excuse me. One planter in 1837 wrote in the Farmers Register magazine. Quote, the most general defect of the Negro is hypocrisy. And this hypocrisy frequently makes him pretend to more ignorance than he possesses. End quote. This, oh, I'm sorry. Continue quote. This is a very convenient trait as it frequently serves as an apology for awkwardness and neglect of duty. End quote. So, you know, you see what he's saying there. Splanter is writing into this magazine saying, Hey, look, here's what I know about our slaves is that like they pretend they don't know stuff all the time. And then, and then like, it's really convenient for them to pretend that because then like, instead of having to like screw, you know, apologize for a screw up 
or just apologize for like not doing what they're supposed to do. They're just like, oh, I, I didn't know. You know, exactly. Pleading ignorance. Um, now, historians have demonstrated ways that field slaves used work slowdowns and pretending ignorance to exercise some control over their rate of work. But these tactics, of course, risk significant costs. One former slave remembered, quote, for killing time like this, you got 25 licks, end quote. Starvation was also used as a punishment. Planner John Edwin Fripp explained, quote, prevent slaves having their dinner, or sorry, yeah, John Edward Fred explained prevent prevent slaves from having their dinner because the overseer thought he hadn't done enough work uh, in a given time, end quote. So he, he explained about what preventing one slave from not having their dinner because he thought he hadn't worked hard enough. Um, so again, like you talked about, you'd think like a nice steak at the end of the day. No, they're doing the opposite. Like if you're not working hard enough, you're starved. Mm-hmm. Black overseer. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, yeah, yeah. I, I yeah, as a reward. Saying- as the carrot, you know. But now, black overseers, which was a position sometimes given to favored slaves, slaves who had proven themselves loyal, or at least so the master thought, they were probably huh? Same. Oh, happened all the time. Yeah, exactly. Happened all the time. They were, but, but again, which is also which is itself a tactic. Well, if this is my life, I can make my life better by being the most loyal. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, I only have to swallow all of my pride and completely, you know, die to myself. You know what I mean? Anyway, but black overseers were probably the hardest to fool. Um, and their relatively privileged position meant they had more material comforts to lose if they weren't demanding enough. So we can see kind of how easily the ruling class makes solidarity and like collective action. Like you said, resist, you know, uh, rebellion even harder with even just modest improvement to the material conditions of a few. Right? You put a few in charge as overseers, and they, number one, know how much work can get accomplished in a, in a given amount of time. They have more to lose, so they're more likely to push harder, right? You know, and, and so and you yep. so you can break the solidarity right there. Occasionally, uh, slaves were timekeepers as well for various reasons. The former slave Maddie Griffiths recalled. Uh, dangers that a slack timekeeper could bring upon everyone. Quote, since the illness of master, things had not gone on with the same precision as before. There was a few minutes difference in the blowing of the horn, and for offenses like these, master had sworn deeply that everyone's hide should be striped as soon as he was able to preside at the post. End quote. So you see, you know, uh, if a black timekeeper, you know, in this case, sort of like an overseer, is is like, oh, cool, master's laid up sick. Well, I'll take it a little bit easy on everybody. A couple minutes. Everyone gets punished. Yeah. Jeez. Plantation mistresses often served as kind of time snitches. Quote, Mrs. would go upstairs and watch out of the window at the slaves working. And if she's seen one that wasn't working for a minute, she would tell the master when he comes in and he would sure catch the dickens. End quote. Now, amazingly, some of those who managed to sort of learn clock time literacy also succeeded in more radical forms of existence. Uh, a slave woman in Natchez, Louisiana, uh, Natchez, a slave woman in Natchez, for example, taught slaves to read and write at a midnight school between 11 and 11 PM and 2 AM. And this was only possible because she could read the clock and make sure everybody got home safe. The teacher, that teacher and pupils turned the master's time into a weapon of their own. And this is where we find this sort of great contradiction. 
Planner's drive for precision and regularity was measured and implemented through clock time. And if slaves were time obedient, efficiency and order would follow. However, regularity was predictable. And slaves, uh, if they learned that, say, curfew is at 9 p.m., they could create their own time after 9 for reading, for socializing, for play, even for organizing. Oh, okay. Planter James Henry Hammond, who uh, was a congressman as well, realized the inherent dangers of regularity. Once or twice a week, his overseers checked the quarters after 9 just to confirm that everybody was compliant and in their quarters, you know, after curfew. He also instructed the overseers further, saying, quote, all are privileged and encouraged to go to church on Sundays, but no religious meeting is allowed on uh, the plantation beyond singing and praying, and at such times as will not conflict with the plantation hours, end quote. Various plots were planned after hours and required clock-like precision. A former Mississippi slave, Maddie Logan, explained how one cruel overseer was dealt with, quote, One of the slaves told how to cure him. Get a snake and put the snake in the overseer's cabin. Slip the the snake in about, no, not about, but just exactly nine o'clock at night. The time was important. Why so? I don't remember now, end quote. Thus, slaves turned clock precision against those who might only give them, say, 15 minutes for dinner or whip them for losing time. Right, so they could turn the clock around on them uh-huh. if they kind of knew how to use it. By the late yep. 19th century, the pressure of clock time had taken its toll on African American time attitudes, songs and riddles, ideas about God and death, even definitions of freedom. Images of clocks and watches loomed large. Some former slaves found comfort in the sounds of public time, like Jack Dodson of Texas. "Quote: I would never go out of the sound of that city clock in town." End quote. Clocks were commonly associated with death. Former slave George Womble explained, quote, if the clocks in a house are not stopped on the death of one of the members, it will soon stop of its own accord and will never run again. End quote. Another former slave said, quote, I would never stay in a house that would not stop the clock the minute the person dies. For every minute that the clock runs takes the soul that much longer to cross the valley of the shadow of death. End quote. For years, Clocks were placed on African-American burial grounds, and they were always broken deliberately. But anyway, there's something symbolic about that. that, Like, you would bury people and put a broken clock on their gravesite. You know what I mean? Like, it's it's meaningful. Mm -hmm. Uh, The way that they had assigned mystic value, you know, to the clock. Maybe the most obvious evidence that clock time had penetrated African-American society was the number of former slaves who recalled almost to the minute what time freedom came for them. Mary Anderson of North Carolina remembered freedom arrived, quote, at nine o'clock, end quote. Steve Jones of Texas said, quote, the day we set free, it was about eight o'clock in the morning, end quote. Others defined independence as an end to clock time regulation and to obedience. For Katie Rowe of Oklahoma, freedom meant, quote, there ain't no more horn after that day, end quote. And Jenny Bowen of Alabama said, quote, no bell ringing for me. I'm free, end quote. But most importantly, former slaves interpreted freedom in terms of having the right to regulate their own work and rest time. And this meant they needed clock and watch ownership. 
Mastering timepieces meant mastering their own time. Former Texas slave John Thompson told a story about his mother. Quote, the old master, he had a great big clock, and it would ting instead of striking. The day before, before freedom, Mammy said, going to be mighty strange when it's about time for the clock at the big house to ting. The day of freedom, Mammy say, son, let's go home. Ma will soon have a clock of her own self, her own self that will ting for her, end quote. By the 1880s, between 73 and 83% of all Southerners owned a clock, watch, or both. Former slave Herndon Bogan told this uh, particularly interesting tale. Quote, one night I kills a white hobo who trying to grab my, who trying to rob me of my gold watch and chain End quote Booker T. Washington. Uh, <laughs> when he toured the black South in 1881, he found even in the poorest cabin quote, I often found showy clocks for which the occupants of the cabin had paid 12 or $14. Uh, end quote. And just like New England mill workers had campaigned for public clocks to counter mill, mill owners' monopoly of public time and to, quote, directly challenge the mill owners' power to define public and work time, end quote, freed people saw timepiece ownership as a way to democratize time. Former slaves believed freedom would mean a repudiation of master's time. Charlie Davenport of Natchez defined freedom as, quote, Ain't no master going to say to you, Charlie, you got to be back when the clock strikes nine, end quote. Sarah Wooten hopefully exclaimed, quote, this here is new time. Let that be, end quote. But in many ways, they would be wrong. In the very beginning, I said a culture's sense of time is the key to its nature. So we might expect to see a new time sensibility take shape after the war. Right. Right. If, if a culture sense of time is the key to its nature, the nature of the South changes. So their sense of time should change to reflect that. Right. Yeah, okay. I have another question here. All right. You were talking about them telling about the time, like when they yep. uh, had freedom. When yes. They first had yes. Freedom, you know, whatever. OK. How did that look so you're saying that were they like out in the field working and someone just came by and said hey guys uh we're all free no. now or like i would imagine it wasn't the most quickest news that the that the planter would be willing to run out there and be, be like oh my labor force is now free you know so how did this how did this go about actually for many people happening here? it happened when the union army marched through Okay, yeah, so the army came <laughs> you know, or gotcha. or like gotcha. the planter gotcha. and all the white folks fled because the army was on was going to come through, and so they were like, I mean, they weren't in trouble, right? I mean, like they weren't going after the planters, were they? They were just freeing the slaves, but they, they weren't like rounding up planters some of them for crimes because a lot of them, the, yeah, because the planters are really? aristocrats, which means that most of them are politicians. A lot of them are holding public office in the Confederacy, which is. A treasonous state, the state that is in war against the United States. You, you know what I mean? Like it is a, a country at, it is a, a, an illegal country at war with the United States. So sure, of course you round That's up the politicians. So, you don't kill them or anything, but they are so arrested. The planters yeah. then, sure, sure. But then after, I mean, no, the no, no. Over, this is right. So because it, the, the time that people were freed, it's different times because, you know, the war is ongoing. So places were, Freed as the after the Emancipation Proclamation uh, of 1863 
as the Union Army took ground, where they went, what they controlled, that area became free. Yeah. So, you know, it's a grinding battle. It moves back and forth. But, like, okay. if they take, a, they take an area. But at some point, they didn't. They didn't take the entire South. I mean, at some point, like the war ended and and like they didn't like the, the army isn't that big. Right. No. I mean, at that time. I mean, they didn't like march all the way down to like Georgia. Once and the once Florida. the Confederacy had collapsed uh, and surrendered. Um, they, you uh-huh. you I mean, I'm sure, you know, there's planners out there trying. But, you know, uh, word gets around, you know, there's there's an informal communication yeah. network among uh, enslaved folks that that ranges from from coast to deep inside the into the states you know what i mean through word of mouth and if freedom's coming freedom's coming sure and yeah slave slaves on the on the out in the field all of a sudden he sees a bunch of other slaves just walking down the road free. sure i mean he's gonna say uh, uh yeah and what's yeah going on here and yeah and slave, slaves coming from other plantations showing up and being like hey you don't have to work for this cracker sure, anymore sure yeah, you know what I mean. Like, yeah, you, Union Army's one mile up the road. Like, you know, what are they going to do? Right, right. You know, like they need to save their bullets to defend their lives. They're not going to shoot you. Um, and then yeah, no, I mean, eventually you have like it's a military occupation. So I mean, yeah, the soldiers aren't everywhere, but the soldiers control all the levers of power. You know what I mean? They they control the mm-hmm. the operation of the government. They control the resources. What are you going to do with slave labor if you can't sell your product? Because because the army controls sure. the market. It was the whole market. I mean, you know what I mean. That's here. what I mean. Like, what are you going to do? So it. Yeah. I mean, you're going to what are you you're going to work these people to grow stuff just for what? For what reason? You know what do you you know? There's nowhere to, you can't sell it. You can't store it. What are you going to do with it? Well. Right. You, you have to. I mean, you got to figure cotton gin's been around for 100 years. But yeah, you got to figure out, well, 80 years at that point. But, you know, you've got to, um, you know, at a certain point, it's just like, what are you going to do? I mean, some people tried to flee uh, into, some people tried to flee with their slaves into Mexico, stuff like that. They did flee into South America. Um, some slaveholders fled to try and start slave, uh, to do, to try and like, established slave colonies elsewhere there are lots of wild ideas about what to do but anyway so yeah so that's why that's why freedom comes different times for different people yeah okay interesting so in this okay so i said this culture sense of time is key to its nature so we might expect to see a new time sensibility take shape after the war but in by and large we really don't uh the historian julie savile wrote instead quote in the wake of Sherman's march, it required a fine eye to distinguish the twilight of slavery from the dawn of freedom, end quote. In fact, for Southern planters, unlike in other slave societies, freedom posed no real threat to their land ownership, uh, even though redistribution was necessary for any kind of meaningful transformation. In the South, the concern was how planters would maintain control over their workforce. Now, I'm going to get back to this question you asked, because what I said to you was both true and a little misleading. Eventually, the military would come to occupy the South. It takes a little time. So we're going to talk, you know, some things happen in that, that interim period that are unique we want to talk about. So, Responding to the 1863 Emancipation Proclamation, one Louisiana planner claimed, quote, free labor, as it is called, will inevitably prove 
of failure in the South. The Negroes are a naturally low, lazy set. They are not influenced by any desire or gain, as are all the members of the white race. When they have earned a dollar, they will do nothing until it's gone, and starvation compels them to work again. I know them to be a dependent race, end quote. In, uh, I love it. in 1870, a South Carolina planter complained, quote, it now requires from two to three hands to do per diem what one hand used to do for a day's work in former years, end quote. Thanks. Well, but good. their fears were overblown. Based on racist assumptions and misconceptions about post-slavery societies in, West, in the West Indies, Southern planters, they'd read about post-emancipation Jamaica, for example. Quote, the Negroes in some districts will only work the first four hours of the week. I'm sorry, the first four days of the week. Hardly in any case will the people work more than five days in a week. And the average time of field labor is from five to six hours daily, end quote. Now, you might be asking yourself, what, what is the big deal? They'll work four to five days a week, five to six hours a day. It's not like nothing's getting done. But for the Southern planner, this was a nightmare scenario. That pushed them to create. Yeah, this pushed them to create a whole new system system uh, that offered the control of slavery, but with small wages. For planners, the remainder of the 19th century was dedicated to reasserting control over labor and society, and virtually every solution they implemented, like any capitalist solution for regulating production and maintaining a a healthy level of exploitation, it focused on regulating freed people's work time. Initially, one of the first things when, when, you know, Southern planters have to recreate, they have to, to reconstruct the South, build a new system. Initially, they implemented pretty familiar rules. The New Orleans plantation superintendent established, quote, all hands in the field within one half hour of after bell rings, each hand two hours late, shall be docked one half day's labor for each two hours absent. Half hour allowed for breakfast each day and two hours each day for dinner. No hand shall be allowed to roam at will over plantation in the night. And any hand found out of his quarters after nine o'clock each night shall be fined one half day's work. End quote. Sounds just like slavery. Like, okay, you're free. Mm-hmm. You what? know, you. No, whip no whipping. But like, but like the but you have the a government official basically a new government official establishing that like okay there's no more slavery all field hands have to be in in the field working within a half an hour after the bell rings and every 2 hours late you'll be docked a half a day's pay i mean for every 2 hours you lose a half day's pay so if you're 4 hours late you lose a whole day's pay and still have to work you know what i mean that's not that's not wage labor Get a half half an hour for breakfast, well, two hours each day for dinner. No hand allowed to roam at will on the plantation at night. And this is this is all voluntary service. Well, that's right? the thing; it's not voluntary. You're you're yeah. We're getting to that. These things are not voluntary. Okay. They also advised setting ten hours labor as a day's work, as a you know what an official day's work was. So again, they're saying a ten hour day is a full day's labor, and they're saying if you're two hours late. You lose five hours pay. But they're giving them off every no. Friday, right? No. 
No, oh, I they, you said what I said, Monday, no, what Tuesday, I said Wednesday, was, Thursday. there were reports from Jamaica that were exaggerated and overblown and meant to scare, oh, yes, meant to that's scare right, people. That's right. I, I got that you. said that this, the former slaves wouldn't work right. like they used to. No, so okay. they're saying it's a 10-hour workday, and if you're ten, two hours late, you lose five you hours. Imagine they're having a they're having a huge issue with tardiness, so they got to have pretty strict rules in place to get people there on time. You're coming right out of slavery, where people are like, at this point, the, you know, the attitude is probably flipped. The employees are like, "You want me here on time? Yeah, stick it up." But also, head, so say, but also, yeah. Again, I know you. You always think about these as a uh, the owner, the ownership class, for the laborers, mm-hmm. for the freed people. They're being basically told, like, we, you have no choice. You, you have to work. We're going to get to the part about where they have no choice but to work, but like they have to work. Okay. So they're like, how is this different? Except now I'm getting paid a wage. But if I'm late, again, you if I'm. Huh? What's the wage, by the way? It, it's a it's irrelevant. I have wage. no idea. It's irrelevant. Um, but like, okay, no, they don't have. But like, wage. but again, if you're but two I'll... hours late, you lose five hours pay, right? I mean, this is yeah, of course they have. I mean, to make, they have it's to so. My my point is the like, just be on time, buddy. Yeah, just but that's the thing. Work, who needs who needs you who in this situation? Worry about it. Well. They need the employee, right? The employee's got the leverage here because, you know, they're struggling to find a workforce now since slavery has been been outlawed. And right. So their way of enticing so people, the employees, their way of enticing the people is all stick, no carrot. But but you also got to think of it this way: um, the the employee in this case, I'm sure it's this is high poverty. You know, they want some sort of they, they need money right or sure, but they, mean, they, they let, let's be honest so in, they've had to be in, insanely resourceful in order to meet their caloric needs with no question under slavery so they're going to be no better question. off trying to no figure question. out how to survive than anybody else but is. they were also they were also they were also given shelter and whatever food they were given however good it was or bad it was they were they were fed right so now all of that they're fending so they're fending for their, themselves right now. Well, so they need to have so, some sort of resource coming in. They need to have. So the question, sort of see, here's there's there's a big question. Uh, I can't because mm-hmm. you also got to think there's no there's no government helping them out. There's no relative government helping them out. Them out they're but all, yeah, they're all slaves, right? So, yeah. You know, other than freeing them, I mean that obviously was a big help. But I'm saying there's no like um, unemployment benefits. Sure, in, you know what I'm saying. So. You know they're not going down to the welfare no, line, stuff like you're that. right, but okay, yeah, but you know you could also just steal the hog. Um, you know what I mean? Just steal the hog. Like, what what are they going to do to you? But anyway, that's it here and there. I want to read to you what the the rest of the way that the South responds to uh, this new system. So they said, uh, uh, so they uh, advise setting ten hours labor as a day's work. So basically what we have is freedom looks like slavery, but with extra steps. Southern laws also regulated mobility. Almost immediately, uh, Southerners, they elected new legislatures, uh, all white, and they start passing vagrancy laws. Vagrancy laws 
demand the arrest of freed people who are out past curfew or traveling without a signed pass from an employer. Again, this is freedom, right? You're a free person. You have to have a pass from your employer if you want to walk down the street. You have to, you have, you'll get arrested if you're out past curfew. Well, that, that I, I, I buy curfews 9 p.m. reasonable, not reasonable, but I could, I could see it. But listen, when you get off work, (laughs) how in the world can you not travel? Oh, I don't understand that. What if you're not, what if you're unemployed? So, slave catchers who had been utilized during slavery to hunt down slaves Mm -hmm. were mobilized into police forces. Their job was to restrict black mobility. That was their job to arrest people walking down the street without passes. Uh, Their mandate was to protect and serve the ruling class, arresting any blacks without a permanent home, without a permanent job, no home, no job. You face fines or prison farms. If you can't pay the fine, the police would sell you to a plantation to work off your fine. So you would be bound to work until your fine was paid. Or you go to jail where you work a plantation. You work on the plantation for the prison. So tell me again, what does this sound like to you? Is that little group of hound hunters, whatever they're called, is that the... uh, incarnation of the KKK. No, it's the incarnation of professional police forces. This is where police forces... It is. This is where professional police... That's true. Is that, is yeah, it true? They, police forces... Is police... The actual police force? There wasn't a police correct. force at all. There were constables and there were sheriffs. They are not police. They're... The, well, the Wild Wild West was... When was this? When was, like, the I mean, Wild West going on? Yeah, <laughs> it, it's... I mean, it's, around this time, 18, I mean, you know, Kansas and all that stuff, that's uh, bleep. It's sheriffs of town or something. But a like sheriff is not, a sheriff. It, it's, a, it's a completely different situation. But yeah, there's no, there's gotcha. no profession, the professional, okay. the first local professional kind of police forces are slave catchers who then become, who be, gotcha. then become police. Uh, and then their job is to, their job is exclusively to hunt down blacks uh, who have the audacity to try and travel. Now, uh, so I want to just say this, you know, you can't pay the fine. You're sold to a plantation to work it off. But I want you to think about this. You know, it's as they say, quote, a crime with a fine is only for the working class, end quote, right? Any crime that can be satisfied with just a fine is a working class is only for the working class because it doesn't affect the rich. Right? They might have to pay it, but it doesn't really impact them in any way. It's only going to impact the poor, the working class. Correct. So Correct. here's the thing. Correct. You see, freed people, once they were freed, one of the very first things they did, they took to the roads because they wanted to track down parents, children, wives, family, and other kin yep. who had been sold down the river or up the river. Goombatis. So one of the biggest priorities for freed people, the two biggest priorities for freed people was putting their families back together and education. Those were their two biggest priorities. So they wanted schools. They wanted to learn. They wanted to be taught to read and write and they wanted to find their families. So, yeah. Let me ask you a question. At this point, do slaves speak English for the most part? All of them at this point? Yeah. I mean, I can't say all, I mean, you never know, but yeah, I mean the overwhelming majority. So how many, 
the, the, trans, look, the transatlantic slave trade ended in 1808. So there were no more slaves coming from Africa after 1808. Now, that's not true. People were still smuggled in. But by and large, and part of the reason Thomas Jefferson wanted that to be the law and signed it into law while president was because Virginia, tobacco, the tobacco market had crashed. But Virginia still had the most slaves mm-hmm. in the Union. And so, uh, so they've got all these slaves, but tobacco prices are far less profitable than they used to be. So Thomas Jefferson doesn't want to import any more African slaves because he wants Virginia, his home state, to be the kind of um, – basically he wants slaves to be the commodity that Virginia sells. And so that's so, – so he doesn't end yeah. the transatlantic slave trade out of altruism. Uh, th- there's an element of that, I guess, to some degree. Um, it's hard to make that argument too strongly given that he doesn't want to end slavery. But it's also uh, out of selfish financial interest. Um, you know, the material interests of his own state that they have an excess population of slaves that are not necessary for the economic conditions of their cash crops. So he wants to turn that to, to become a new commodity. So cotton is becoming more and more valuable. So you can sell slaves from Virginia down the river to Mississippi, you know, or whatever. So I I can imagine at at the very beginning of slavery in the United States, the first slaves that arrived here, none of them spoke English. And then I guess it was the next generation of slaves that started. No, the first generation, they, they learn on the I'm fly. Guessing, right? They, they learn Creole. I mean, they, they learn a, a Creolized, you know, English. Because I would imagine the slave owners, the planters would, would prefer them to know English so they can instruct them and they would be able to, you know, mm-hmm. kind of listen to them and whatnot. There wouldn't be that barrier. And it's not just the slave how owners. Many, how many? It starts many on the slave ships. How many generations were here? It starts on the slave what ships. Well, I mean, what do you mean? How many generations? The very first slave ship arrived in 1619. So, I mean, 1619 to 18. From Africa, yeah. So, but you, Correct. but I mean, but again, throughout okay. that whole time, you know, as that time passes, the slave folks that live in the Americas who have been what they call seasoned. Right? They've been through a few seasons. They've developed immunity to some of the diseases that are here and all that stuff. You know, they're more likely to live, and then their children are much more likely to survive. Whereas the mortality rate from African slaves is, is high. You know, they're being introduced into a new region with new diseases. They've already been, their their spirits are being broken. You know, they're trying to be destroyed and turned from, uh, you know, from individuals into commodities. And so the death rate is high for a variety yep. of reasons. Huge suicide rates, uh, you know, huge deaths of despair numbers, and then just disease and everything else. So uh, American-born slaves are hardier, more likely to live, live long lives. You know, they start having a longer lifespan um, because they're immune to the diseases here. Just it's the same as European immigrants to the Americas where they die in huge numbers. But the more that are here that survive those diseases and they pass on their genetic material the next generation lives even longer and so on and so forth you know that's just the nature of things if you or i moved permanently to the brazilian rainforest you know if the two of us both moved one of us would probably die pretty quickly pretty quickly sure i mean well i mean one of us would die but then if the one of us that survived if we were able to then like pass on pass on our material to uh to somebody you know and raise a child, that child's going to be more likely to survive than either of us were, you know, and so on and so forth. Generation by generation. Same sure. thing. 
Okay. Um, so again, so it's back to this thing. So for free people, putting their families back together was their priority number one. But obviously, you know, this was what they when when freed people and freed people are former slaves. That's what that word means. People who've been freed, freed people. Okay. So I'm no longer going to talk about slaves. I'm going to talk about freed people. Freed people. This was what freedom meant: the ability to go put their families back together, right? To live where they wanted, right? Perhaps to pursue di- employment with whom they wanted, um, but most importantly, to put their families back together. Sure. And but this vision of freedom was not allowed because by traveling. You can only travel the roads if you had a pass from your employer. And no employer is going to be like, sure, you can travel through the South until you find your family wherever they might be. Right? Sure. Right. Yeah, work away. Right. But don't worry about work. Just go ahead and, and right. take, take, take my car. Here. So this work. is kind of the, the way work. things operated. Again, because the Civil War, because of the war, um, we always say like the Civil War ended in 1865. But like it ends in different places earlier than that, as the Union Army seizes control of different areas. You know, different areas begin this process earlier. And um, so but at the very least for the entire South from 1865 to 1860, the beginning of 1867, these are the laws that they're putting on the books. So for about two years, but in, in the election of 1866, the radicals, the, the, they call them the radical Republicans, but they're the ones who are like the, the ones who have the most radical ideas, the most, uh, again, they're, they are not, uh, they're the the least moderate, least conservative. They're the ones uh, that freed the slave, right? Republicans the ones that freed the slaves. Yeah, in general, yeah. Was, I mean, the army did, but yeah, the Republican okay. Party is. I just want to put the time yes, frame. Yes, yes, yeah. I got, um, you, I got those. You. Those. Yes, we'll just leave it then. The Democrats, yeah, but there were the northern Democrats who were against slavery as well. They just didn't think the government should mandate it. Sure. Gotcha. Uh, okay. There's no cultural stuff. You know what I mean? Like the, the, the issues that the parties represented were so fundamentally different. Anyway, but sure. when the radical Republicans seize control of Congress, they get an, um, like the two thirds majority, a veto proof majority. They, um, between that and, you know, they, they impeached Andrew Johnson, who had taken over after Lincoln was killed, which basically stripped him of any power. Like he was powerless after that. Um, so sure. after that, the radical Republicans looked at what was going on in the South and they were like, we did not fight this war for you to basically institute slavery late. You know, that was not the purpose. So gotcha. they would end all of these conservative laws in the South and they would put in a much a more radical program, you know, ending conservative, the, the conservative, you know, like we, we just want to keep doing the same thing slightly differently. Um, you know, the status maintain status quo. And they put in like, so and we're not going to get into a lot of those, you know, th- those specific changes, right? National politics are sort of beyond the scope of this story. So, uh, but but they put an end to those policies. That's the most important thing. But one issue, one really important issue, continue like really remains left with all this, and that is what labor system okay. is going to replace slavery, right? A clock time wage system, or something that's closer to the kind of natural time sensibilities of the freed people themselves. And the answer is it's complicated. It's complicated. Clock. The most common system <laughs> early on seemed like a victory for the freed people and their time sensibility. And the most common was sharecropping. Now, sharecropping has a negative connotation today. Seems like a bad system. 
and sure. and for good reason. But again, and I maybe I can touch on that a little bit. But that let's put that aside for a second, so I can so tell you a bit about how this battle goes on. So just how um, okay. planters remembered the efficiency of uh, clock time labor. Breed people remembered the tyranny of planter defined time. So that's going to be the real battle that takes place in the South, sure. right? Former masters advocated a time wage system and former slaves preferred the idea of sharecropping. Sharecropping was paying laborers with a share of the crop. This allowed freed people to control the time that they worked, not planters. They could work more or less. As long as they fulfilled their obligation, they could do, they, they could control their own time. They want to take Wednesday off because their kids got a baseball game. They can do that. Right. As long as they finish their what they need to get done, like however they go about, however they do it, they want to work on Sunday. They do their thing. Right. Those kinds of things. Okay. Mm -hmm. So this was the expectation of sharecropping. And this is why freed people, by and large, preferred it. This isn't to say some planters didn't also think this was a good idea. But by and large, planters preferred the idea of switching to a wage system. Okay. Okay. Planters printed articles. And they gave speeches on the merits of day wages. One Farmers Club president explained, quote, It gives the farmer control over his labor by enabling him to discharge his hands when they become inefficient. Control over labor is essential. It leads to economy in labor. Mm-hmm. When the farmer pays a specific money equivalent for labor, he naturally seeks to reduce the amount employed. The very essence of the system lies in the constant and active supervision, end quote. But freed people coveted freedom and ownership of their own time. So this helped perpetuate negative stereotypes that some racial flaw prevented them understanding punctuality, and it spread negative connotations to CPT without understanding that it had a kind of cultural importance. They basically were like, oh, look, they're defective, right? But selling one's time is selling part of oneself. This sacrifice of freedom is no small matter. It's one that we should consider deeply. Sharecropping, quote, offered the discrete prospect of immediate gain. It meant that blacks that they were partners with the landowners in the enterprise of planting, harvesting, and marketing the crop. And that meant opportunity for independence and control over the disposition of their labor power, end quote. In other words, share wages allowed freed people to control their labor and their time. Time wages do not. The sociologist John Horton <clears throat> argued, quote, diversity of time perspectives can be understood intellectually, but it's rarely tolerated socially. A dominant group reifies and objectifies its time. It views all other conceptions of time as subversive as indeed they are, end quote. And this would play out in the New South. Freed people negotiated their conceptions of time actually from a position of power. One observer in Louisiana in 1863 wrote, quote, In every contest between the master and his freedmen, the latter, meaning the freedmen, invariably win the day. They have a mine of strategy to which the planter sooner or later yields, end quote. Withholding labor was the most common protest. South Carolina planter J.G. McKim wrote about timing his workers' labor, which was resisted frequently. Of one former slave, he wrote, quote, He paid no regard to his contract, 
and told me repeatedly he did not care a damn for it, would not work, was insolent, would leave work, and visit the adjoining plantation during work hours. Why, he'd tell me he was free now, and would go when he pleased, and return when he pleased. End quote. Others... Mm-hmm. I could see that. Others complained, pro. quote, Our experience shows the same amount of labor cannot be obtained under a free as under a compulsory system of labor. End quote. Planners eventually surrendered their own predilection for squeezing the very most out of labor time. They had to employ freed people on their own terms. But years of clock time indoctrination had made an impact. Freed people had accepted the master's terms and only resisted within the framework. Just like English factory workers a few generations earlier, who had resisted managers' ownership of time so severely that they formed clock and watch societies where a single watch would be shared by up to 20 people for 20 weeks, a practice that they wrote in an open letter as a recommendation to Americans in 1829. Uh, E.P. Thompson explained, quote, they had accepted the categories of their employers and learned to fight back within them. They had learned their lesson that time is money only too well, end quote. Once freed people accepted the logic of timed labor, they too joined an international proletariat. They understood the nature of time and its relationship to money. They knew its tyranny, and they understood all too well that the fight over its ownership would be the battleground of class relations. Though slave owners had been dying uh, as a political class, as an economic class, they had drifted so far to the capitalist sort of utilization of clock time that they'd honestly already become 19th century moderns. They were already capitalists. So I want to turn back to Edgar Allan Poe. In many of his stories, as we've seen a few of them, mechanical time and the literal figure of the clock or watch are like characters bringing misfortune or doom in his stories. From the Mask of Red Death, which sees Prince Prospero dying prostate, prostrate, not prostate, prostrate before an ebony clock, its shadow falling over him like the raven's shadow, fell over the narrator and Poe's uh, more famous work, which you might know, to Psyche Zenobia's decapitation in A Predicament, to the bafflement of the people in Vandervatimidis in The Devil in the Belfry, slavish devotion to mechanical time, thus man's hubris imagining his control over nature, results in devastating losses of freedom. But there is one Poe story in which a character rejects the tyranny of the clock, He rejects the mechanistic delineation of life, and the result is worth our examination. In his story, A Descent into the Maelstrom, Poe's narrator is an old, illiterate fisherman whose watch marks the regular appearance of a deadly maelstrom, this whirlpool, that emerges at the center of a ring of 12 islands. So he's doing that clock thing again, you know? Right, ah, he does. Like he uses it. this That's symbolism, cool. and like you know, he's expecting his reader to pick up on it. So there's maelstrom in the middle of the clock, right? Okay, timing the whirlpool mechanistically led the fishermen to believe in the predictability, the domestication of nature. But when his mechanical watch failed, his reliance on mechanistic living proves potentially deadly when the strom encircles his boat. Staring into the unbridled power of nature, awed by its uncontrollability, the fisherman does what others could not. He abandons mechanistically ordered life, and he embraces the sublime. He says, quote, 
It may look like boasting, but what I tell you is truth. I began to reflect how magnificent a thing it was to die in such a manner, and how foolish it was in me to think of so paltry a consideration as my own individual life in view of so wonderful a manifestation of God's power. I do believe I blushed with shame when this idea crossed my mind. End quote. He's looking into the into the kind of heart of this whirlpool and he thinks when he looks at it, he sees the sublime. He he, he sees the power of nature, the uncontrollable nature. Something beyond our comprehension. Beast. And he says Damn right. You know, he's thinking like, Man, like who am I to think that my individual life is somehow more important than this force that I see before me? And he's embarrassed that he even had the thought. Right? So our other characters, they tried to fight using time, using mechanistic, a mechanistic existence. They tried to fight their own mortality. They tried to fight against the, the sublime. Okay. All right. So Great. there. So sorry. There, within the walls of the Strom... He loses track of time and space. The moonlight shines through, forming a rainbow in the mist that shielded his vision. Quote, a magnificent rainbow, like a bridge, which Muslims say is the only pathway between time and eternity. End quote. Freed from... Huh? That's right. The rainbow represents God. Is that what that means? So that's, he's not really necessarily... He's saying the Muslims say that, so sort of. Um, okay. But yeah, he's saying that, you know... This rainbow looks like a bridge outside of a mechanistic existence. Freed from slavish devotion to a mechanistic life, the fisherman becomes creatively free, and he throws himself into the strom, lashed to a water cask, and he survives the whirlpool. He survives by embracing the chaos of nature, by living in the world, not trying to control it. For Poe, Freedom comes, or for the fisherman, rather, freedom comes when he willingly embraces the sublimity of death. He gazes into the horror of unpredictability and submits fully to its whims. And for this, he lives to tell the tale. Now, truly emancipated from mechanistic living, when he tells other fishermen the tale, they do not believe him. They all remain captured by the clock. Slaves to the pernicious tyranny of time and the ordered mechanistic life. So that's the end of our story, but I want to put a bow on it. Little bow. Little, little Little bow. bow. Tie it up. Tie it up, Brian. Tie that bow up, Brian. On no, or I'm sorry, at noon, exactly noon on November 18th, 1883. Uh oh. Standard time was imposed on the United Uh-oh. States. Ah. Uh-huh. What's that mean? Not by government. Standard uh, time, that- you know, Eastern Standard Time. <clears throat> like Eastern Standard, Central Standard, Pacific. So, standard time was imposed on the United States, not by government, but by the General Time Convention a trade association representing railroad interests. Mm -hmm. Nearly every American railroad implemented the new time according to newly uh, designated time zones at noon, Eastern Standard Time. 
It became known as the day with two noons. Because, you know, a lot of places had to adjust their clock. So it was noon, but then they turned it back eight minutes sure. to become noon. Yeah. yeah. Sure. Now, let me ask you a question. I thought that that was because of the freaking sun. Like the sun rises here, so it's earlier, and then it doesn't get it doesn't rise in the middle of the country until an hour later. So that's whatever central time, and then it doesn't rise until in the west until three hours later. So right, you but know, you know Pacific the time. sun moves like this across the sky. It doesn't move like this. So sure, when it's noon in Jacksonville, Florida, when it is Meaning, straight in right. the sky at Jacksonville, Florida. The sun is not straight in the sky in Tallahassee, Florida, all the way across the end of the Panhandle, seven, eight hours away. No, but what, but what I'm saying is, like, the say the sun rises here right. at six thirty sure. a.m. Right? The the sun will rise in California at six thirty a.m. However, it'll be nine thirty a.m. here, so it's it'll be. Let's three say hours it like later. this: when the sun rises in Ocean City, Maryland. The sun is not yet rising where you live. Correct. But the time is the same in both places now because of standard time. Correct. Be- well, of standard time, is because I'm going to tell you, be- I'm going to tell you. <clears throat> okay. Okay. I got you. Go this ahead. is an invent. This was, this was a human invention. This is not any natural thing. Okay. All right. People, when they traveled around, used to have to set their clocks to the local time wherever they went. And that meant, like, if you went from Savannah to Atlanta, you adjusted your watch. Oh, geez, what a pain in the ass. I mean, you have to do that now if you go from Savannah to uh, just a little bit past Atlanta to the central time zone. Do the same thing. That's a little ways past Atlanta. That's a long way. What, to the central? Yeah. After the Transcontinental Railroad was completed in 1869, railroads and railroading steadily moved the country toward the idea of, steady, of standard time. The idea was first conceived by a South Carolina Canal and Railroad Company an engineer in 1834. From, the 18, from 1840 to the 1870s, various New England railroads introduced their own standard times. Ignoring geopolitical divisions and all local time conventions, the general time convention divided the country at every 15 degrees longitude, one hour. Symbolically, the east-west orientation of time zones represented the temporal destruction of the north-south sectionalism that had existed since the beginning of the country. We were reorienting the country east-west instead of north-south. The clock reigned supreme. William F. Allen, former president of Camden and Amboy Railroad, secretary of the General Time Convention, and perhaps the man most responsible for the temporal coup that was happening, stood atop the Western Union Building in New York City on that fateful day in November. He wrote, quote, Standing on the roof of that building, I heard the bells of St. Paul strike on the old time. Four minutes later, obedient to the electrical signal from the Naval Observatory, the time ball made its rapid descent. The chimes of Old Trinity rang 12 measured strokes, and local time was abandoned. 
probably forever. So you, you see what's going on there? He's standing on top of this building and he hears at noon the bells ring at St. Paul's because it's noon, local time. But because of the standard time, they had to make a four-minute adjustment. And so four minutes later, it was noon according to standard time. And then the chimes rang again, signifying that it's it's noon. Do you understand? They had to adjust. Okay. I do. In New York, anyone who wanted to keep the new time had to stop the timepieces for four minutes. In Washington, D.C., they had to move their clocks ahead eight minutes. Chicagoans closed theirs or slowed theirs down by nine minutes. New Orleans, Denver, Philadelphia, they did nothing. For most people, the revolution required just a minor clock adjustment. This change. So wait a second, wait a second, wait a second. Yeah. Let me interrupt you here. You're saying some of these things, is everyone on the same time now? Or, or so someone in Philly, if they called someone in Chicago or wherever, are they going to be like, hey, it's four o'clock here? And they'd be like, no, you asshole, it's 345. You're late for the meeting. No, 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 I'm not late. Look, it's only four. You, every no, time. Towns would Come have on, the, their own clocks. And the, the way the sun appears in the See? sky is how you determine the time. Like you set the time according to whatever the conventions are in your area. So Maine is much farther east. You know, the the eastern seaboard of Maine is farther east than, say, Atlanta. So the difference between sunrise there and sunrise in Atlanta is huge. So setting your clock, so figuring out what time it's noon in on the eastern seaboard of Maine versus Atlanta is going to be a, a big difference. Big difference in time. Sure. And you set your clock according to the local time. Standard time is what changes that. That's what I'm talking about. Didn't didn't exist before that. Thank God. Hold on. Just, just hold on. Um. So, like I said, for most people, this revolution required just a minor clock adjustment. This change instituted by the railroads again, not the government, like private enterprise, mm-hmm. was not universally accepted or immediately successful in destroying local time. In fact, this was probably the only force promoting the nation state that was not pushed or enforced by the federal government, right? Free wage labor was, and so was like a standard currency, things that are promoting the idea of a nation state, like a unified nation. Standard sure. time is... Yeah, every state sta- has And standard time, stuff. Every, every town had their own time, right? Standard time makes for a more unified nation. But also one that gives up a lot sure. of independence. Everybody gives up their independence by doing this. Right? I mean, you get you understand that, right? Like each time each by by saying fine, we'll operate on what the railroad says. You're giving up your freedom to operate on what the sun says. Why? You, okay. Do you not see that? You see that, right? Okay. No, no. I mean, I, it's, in my mind, time is time. The 24 hours is 24 hours. You can look at the sun, say it's noon, or you can look at the actual clock and say it's 12. Whether the railroad said we're using this, right. calling it standard, is irrelevant. But what I'm, is, what I'm saying is, what I'm saying is, freedom. if you're in on the seaboard of Maine and you look up at the sky and you go, it's noon, mm-hmm. 
The sun is not straight up in the sky. If you were uh, like on the we- on the western edge of Maine, sure, it's not yet noon on the western edge of right. Ma- Andrew Maine. It's several minutes earlier. It's not. You're right. But none of this matters until there's actual phones. There's phones. Stuff. There's phones. Transactions. There's telegraphs. All of these things exist. So, like business, yeah, there's business. transacted. It's all being done. There's ticker tapes um, okay. in Wall Street. Well, then, then, then that's why they need to standardize this shit because it's probably causing havoc. Imagine today on Zoom. Like I get on a Zoom and I'm shooting email outlooks out to to meet someone and it's like holy crap what time is it there? You're assuming there? That this Where is the way the whole world operates and it doesn't is what I'm saying. People have different ways of approaching time. <clears throat> you're you're thinking that this is what I said a minute ago that it, a society cannot have two different visions of time. They can exist in theory, but in practice, one seems subversive, and that is the thing that there are multiple visions of time even still in the world. And your inability to to sort of grapple with them is proof of that point. Those other things seem subversive. I feel like I'm... It's an assumption. You're making an assumption about the like... superiority of your system because you like the way you do things. Um, but people figure it like there's other ways. It doesn't matter. I'm not even talking about the other ways. I just want to get to the standard time story. You're killing me. Like, I feel like I'm, break, I'm, break, I'm breaking your brain. Put a bow on it, baby. But anyway, so yeah, free wage, free wage labor was certainly pushed by the federal government. And so was standard currency, like as a unifying system, as unifying systems nationwide. Sure. But time change was promoted exclusively by, well, not exclusively, was promoted by private enterprise, right? It's the only one not being pushed by a government, by the government. In fact, the federal government first legislated civil time in 1918. That is the 20th century. Before the federal government decided to get an intervene. Yes. And standard time wasn't even made like the law of the land until 1967. Blowing your mind. In fact, Washington, D.C. Sorry. Go I ahead. did. It did blow my mind. No, I'm saying it did blow my mind. It makes sense that the railroad would be the one that would try to institute that, though. I'm just thinking in my mind. It's like they have destinations and a time, time schedule sure. to keep. And it, and it was probably driving them bananas because they're like, yeah, we'll, we'll be picking you up at that stop at, you know, 1020. You're like, oh, uh, wait a second. It's 10. Take this back to back to earlier when Where I talked about you? when the railroad started delivering the mail. The mail had these stringent requirements about time and every town has their own time convention. Yes. They were like, we've had it. We're going to standardize so, but, this shit. Yeah. But so, again, uh, this was just like, this wasn't like, this was just like the the trade group, right? So it's just like the rich assholes. Anyway, all right. Yep. Um, time wasn't mandated. Standard time wasn't mandated until 1967. And in fact, Washington, D.C. was among the last places to accept it. And they were forced to accept it by congressional mandate. Uh, the city, you know, um, a number of clergy also resisted the change, arguing that their local time was God-given. And would not be altered by mammon worshiping railroad interests. So, well, I'm just saying. So there's a point. There's a point to be made there that God gives each area its own time, right? The the sun is at at high noon in each town because God because God ordained the time to be noon in that town. But 
But the money-grubbing railroad interests are trying to force this new time down our throat. And so now we're going to be slaves to mammon by extension instead of instead of adhering to the time that God gave us. Others rejected it specifically because they hated the railroads. Three days after the introduction of the new time, the Indianapolis Daily Sentinel printed, quote, the sun is no longer to boss the job. People must eat, sleep, and work by railroad time. People will have to marry by railroad time, end quote. And even though cities like Chicago, New York, and Philadelphia accepted the new time pretty much with ease, there was actually really strong pushback, especially among working people. In places like Boston, Savannah, but uh, in places like Boston and Savannah, citizens in Bangor, Maine, Detroit, and throughout Ohio refused to accept the new time. In the Eastern time zone, the discrepancy between local and standard time could be as much as 32 to 38 minutes. In the central time zone, it ranged from 45 to 66 minutes at the edges. Yeah, change is well, hard. Change is difficult. You're going to always get that kind of opposition. And to be honest with you, looking back, it, it, it was the right call. You know, we, you know, but back then. Say, because you don't know what you're, you're you don't you know any different. But but if you look if you put yourself in the shoes of the people, I get it because to them they're like, why the fuck do we need to do that? But if they were making probably ten times the phone calls, doing way more business transactions on like not online, obviously not online, but but via some sort of long distance cable wire, what have you, where time is crucial. Or if you operated a business, or if you were in that kind of Mike, I, I situation, I understand that you always care headache. about the eight percent at the very top of the of the spend. You don't care about working people. I get it. But imagine this. Imagine imagine this dystopian hellscape. Working people, people working for wages, have to instead of instead of relying on the sun to naturally wake them up as it rises. They have to get up while it's still dark outside and they have to somehow get themselves ready in the dark and drive themselves or walk themselves or bust themselves to work in the dark because they're now uh, forced to operate on this standard time instead of operating on the natural time that allowed them to get a proper, proper night's sleep to get proper rest. Go to bed a little earlier. Listen, it's good for you to get up at like 4 a.m. You get way more accomplished right by 9 a.m. And then, you know, yeah. you're, you're, you're halfway done the day. I, I know, I know you love all that. I'm work. just like, yeah, human beings have existed for, you know, 150,000 years. They've been getting up at, at 4 a.m. <laughs> with an alarm for 100. I'm sure the 100 is right. <laughs> I'm, I'm sure the species, the survival of the species while, for, though, you, don't for, you know, 150,000 years, they, they didn't know what they were doing. Back to the story. Back to the story. In Augusta, Georgia, one city official complained, quote, the only people that won't stand at time are the railroads. The city doesn't want it. The laboring people don't want it. Nine-tenths of the population of the city are opposed to it. As for the ladies, the ladies. why, they have always been opposed to it, end quote. Between 1883 and 1915, standard time came before Supreme Courts of various states 15 times. 
Several of them ruled in favor of local time against standard time. Such decisions rested on the twin pillars of freedom. So that was the argument. The Supreme Court, when Supreme Courts upheld nat- local time, they said it was about people's freedom. And you couldn't impose on their freedom or you couldn't, you know, stomp on their freedom. And that natural time was, I mean, well, natural. It was by implication given by God or the mystical cosmos or something that humans had no authority over, something natural that we didn't control. And therefore, we couldn't control it because it was a natural law of the world. It is wild to imagine that less than 20 years after the Civil War, Savannah, Augusta, Bangor, Maine, Boston, and Detroit would find themselves on the same side of a sectional conflict against New Orleans, New York, Atlanta, and Chicago. Right? Like, just 20 years after the Civil War, you got, like, Augusta, Georgia, and Detroit, Michigan on the same side against New Orleans, Atlanta, and Chicago and New York. You know what I mean? But this sectional conflict, of course, didn't result in any sort of open warfare. Partly do I suspect, you'll like this, because there were more than a few people like a man in Columbia, South Carolina, 12 days after the introduction of Standard Time, who, quote, stopped yesterday on Main Street and set his watch by a wooden sign. I'm sorry. And set his watch by a wooden sign clock that hung in front of a jeweler's store. He had heard of the new time and he wanted to get the latest end quote. Really? That is funny. Did you not understand this quote? Listen to this again. Hmm. I'm going to read it again. I want you to think about what this man is saying. This is okay. funny. All right. Listen, listen. I think the reason that take two. this, con- take two. that this conflict didn't result in war was because I think there were more than just a few people like a man who went to Columbia, South Carolina, 12 days after the introduction of standard time who quote stopped yesterday on main street and set his watch by a wooden sign clock that hung in front of the jewelers jewelers store. He had heard of the new time and he wanted to get the latest end quote. Well, man, that's funny. Dude was like, hey, I heard there's a new time. I wanted to get me some. And so he said, oh, my God. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think that's basically, like, I think a lot of people were just like that. Hey, I heard there's a new time going around. Let me get some. Oh, God, that's terrible. Yeah. So not everybody, not everybody was smart. So when when did Mr. Rolex get into town? Rolex been done, been around by this point. so, Mike, that's the story of how clock time came to dominate the South. Okay. So, you know, there it, it is. I liked that it. was the end. I liked that it. was the end. I liked it. I liked it. You know, I did. I liked it. It was interesting. It was actually a very interesting. It was. It was very, very interesting because I didn't know about any of that shit. Um, obviously, it kind of pieced it together and made perfect sense once we got into the story. But uh, it was a great story. I loved it. Hmm. I mean, the biggest thing I think with this is like uh, talking about it in the South where, you know, by putting it in the South, because agriculture is so important. So obviously natural time is going to play a huge role in the South. Yes. Where, you know, wage labor like clock time doesn't make as much sense in the South. So I thought it was a really it's a good place to center the story, you know, so you can really see how things change. You know, I mean, you can really see how kind of 
conflict emerges because I think that, like you've said a few times during the whole point, during the whole course of this, you, this is the way things are. It's what you're used to. And to think of time in a way different from the way that you have existed since birth is really challenging. It's a hard thing to do. I mean, I, I really am not, um, I'm not in any way trying to give you grief for having a hard time thinking of, of like, like you're like, Oh, but how would you have meetings? Oh, how would you, you know, I'm like, well, people had meetings before clocks. I mean, you know, it didn't exist. Before, you know, that wasn't like the invention of the meeting, you know what sure, I mean? People, but, people figured it out. But, but as, um, like, for example, as, um, business grew, I mean, honestly, before clocks, I'm sure people had meetings, but I mean, it, it, well, big business wasn't really around then, right? So as the industrial age or whatever hit and, and all these big businesses are sprouting up and small businesses are, are growing, it became a little bit more crucial, right, uh, to to have that type of, of, of well, synchronized sure. time and all that good stuff. I hear um, you. But one yeah. of the things that I think is really interesting is how the working class in particular were the ones who rejected this. It was the working class yeah. who, well, I, who I would see why. I would see why cuz you look like yeah. you're like shit now I'm a slave to the clock. Right. Right. So and and you already it. have so so you have so little freedom already. Exactly. Exactly. And so you're yeah, giving I, up I one more that. degree of freedom. And I mean, like, you know, you think about those like clock and watch societies. It sounds so quaint where you're like, yeah, you had guys that like would have like one watch between 20 men and they would share it for 20 weeks. So like they would pass the watch around just so that they could hold accountable, you know, the, the managers, you know, that one guy would take it and hold the boss accountable or, or the way that like working men would buy, would bound together in order to like petition for, uh, like, uh, um, like some sort of public clock in the town square because otherwise their bosses were the only ones that controlled time. Yep. You know what I mean? So they would like, so once time became the, the way that you measured wages, you know, as opposed to like uh, a, you know, day wage or whatever, you know, once, or, you know, you, you got paid per, per task or whatever, when you started being paid by the hour, then, then they were like, well, Hey, I don't know what an hour is. Like I can only, I can, I can't track that at the factory. I need a, I need a, a, you know, a clock that's in, in town square so everyone can hear it. The chi- you know what I mean? So I know when it's time for me to go home. So I know, so I'm not taking it, being taken advantage of more than I already am. They had to live but, near a bell tower. Anyway. All right. Well, buddy, how can the good people contact us? The good people and only the good people can contact us and find us really where you find all your favorite podcasts, Podbean, Apple, any other pod hosting uh, app. And then if you want to email us, shoot us your suggestions, uh, any stories you want to hear about, any topics, um, any donations. Uh, you can send them to uh, unbalancedviews at gmail.com. Mm-hmm. And then uh, what else are we on there, Brian? Twitter, you can tweet us at Tweet us at Views Unbalanced, although I have to be honest, I haven't really, uh, I haven't been very active on Twitter since, uh, since it's, it's in uh, free fall. 
Email's the best communication. I would say. Email's the best communication. One day, uh, one day, our Instagram, uh, our Instagram engineer will set up an Instagram. I'm not sure when that day will come, but one day, yeah, I gotta, we've got a cool gonna, logo that our we have a cool logo that our Instagram engineer could put on uh, Instagram. Ooh. But that's all right. Well, I'm, um, uh, I'm going to see if he can put it on at least my my personal site. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I'll send it to you. I don't. Know, maybe you don't have yeah. it. I think I do. Um, I think I still have it. It's so cool. Send it to you. Um. All right, so there's that. Okay, and then um, let's see. So I guess I think that constitutes uh, another full episode of the podcast. Yeehaw. Unbalanced Views of History. Uh, until next time, goodbye. Ciao. Hang on. Don't go anywhere. Yeah. All right, re- let me let me read this really quick, okay? Cool, and then I will cool, talk cool. to you for a second. Sources for this episode. Uh, Mark M. Smith, Master by the Clock, Time, Slavery, and Freedom in the American South. Susan Buck Morse, Hegel, Haiti, and Universal History. E.P. Thompson, The Making of the English Working Class. And Time, Work Discipline, and Industrial Capitalism in Past and Present, number 29. Edgar Allan Poe's Complete Short Stories. Coletzo, Coletzo Atkins Kafir Time in Journal of African History number 29 and The Moor is Dead, Give Us Your Money Cultural Origins of an African Work Ethic Chris Nyland Capitalism and the History of Work Time Thought in British Journal of Sociology number 37 Julie Saville, The Work of Reconstruction from Slave to Wage Laborer in South Carolina 1860-70 to 70. John Horton Time and Cool People in Black Experience Soul so Wilson Jeremiah Moses, The Wings of Ethiopia, Studies in African American Life and Letters. And there were some other sources as well, but those are the main ones. And um, all right. Thanks so much for listening. See you next time. Goodbye. Ciao.